The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? That's the sound of Tang Chao, Tang Dynasty, one of China's greatest and earliest rock bands. On this episode, I'm speaking to Kaiser Kuo about the relatively short but special history of rock in China. You might know him from the fantastic Sinica podcast, but you might not know that before he was a podcaster, he was one of the founding members of Tang Dynasty. On this episode, we talk about how the opening up of China after the Cultural Revolution allowed in this decisively Western musical genre, how it fused with Chinese musical traditions upon contact and its lasting association with the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests. I started by asking Kaiser how he came to found Tan Dynasty. It's a little bit of an involved story, so please be merciful. Uh, I was playing in a band in college in the 1980s at UC Berkeley, and out of a fluke connection through my father, we were actually invited to go to China to play. And while that didn't pan out in the end, it did sort of plant the seed of me wanting to go to China to play music. And since I was the one who was communicating with the host organization over there, which was something called the Shanghai International Youth Culture Exchange Association or something like that, they were sending me all this, all the sort of backline lists, the equipment that they had. And I concluded that somebody over there must be playing rock music. Otherwise, they wouldn't have, you know, the Fender Twin Reverb amps and the Marshalls and the, the drums and everything that they did. So I just determined that, that as soon as I graduated, even though I wasn't going to go over there with my college band Freefall, that I would go over there and I would find musicians. And so my cover <laughs> was that I enrolled at what was then called Beijing Language Institute at Wudalkou in Beijing and very quickly met up with, first of all, musicians in my own school, but we uh, found our way to a music store. It was introduced to us by a Ukrainian and a Russian friend who told us how to get there. And we, we went there, and that very afternoon, were introduced to Ding Wu, who was the person with whom I would co-found Tang Dynasty a few months later. So uh, that's how it all started. I had gone home for Chinese New Year in the early part of 1989, and when I came back, Ding Wu met me at the airport. Uh, I had gone back to buy a bunch of equipment and, you know, pick up things that weren't easy to get in China and to bring back another amp and another couple of guitars. And he told me that he had been approached by a film director out of Xi'an who wanted to make this movie called War Yaogun, the Feng Po. It was the stupidest <laughs> screenplay I've ever seen. Wait, let's just translate that as well. <laughs> so, okay, the so crazy what? chick who played rock and roll. <laughs> okay. 
I remember the plot of the thing. It was about this band that played in some dance hall, you know, in the evenings. But then afterward, they let their hair down and they played, you know, real rock and roll. And there was this singer, this pop singer who gets romantically involved with one of them. Not the character that I played, but uh, was sort of persuaded that the schmaltzy pop that she had been crooning during the evenings wasn't real and that the authentic music was rock and that she becomes this convert and she becomes the cra- the eponymous crazy chick who played rock and roll. So, so he gets approached by this film director and what, what happens next? So we were asked to star in and to play the band in the movie and <laughs> to write the soundtrack to the thing. So they, they set us up in this little old move-and-pick hotel disco on the far north side of Beijing at Huilongguan. And we, you know, during the day, we would just basically write music and play and rehearse our stuff. And then at the end of the day, we would make our way down into town and into Tiananmen Square where the student demonstrations were happening. And so it was a very weirdly divided life in that in those months of 1989. Mm, Yeah. I mean, I did want to pin it down in terms of date because this is after the Cultural Revolution has finished, you know, a decade after China is going through reform and opening. You have been born in the U.S. Am I right in thinking, Kaiser, that you were born in the U.S.? Uh, That's right. That's right. Right, right, right. And so, so you came back to China as a teenager thinking you want to make some rock, you want to make some rock in China. You discover Dingwu, you, you meet him. But for Chinese people in China at the time, they'd gone through this period of extreme cultural closeness. It was rock kind of first entering China in that decade. That's right. If you looked at the beginning of the 1980s, there was nothing. I guess the the lucky few who had access to, you know, the friendship store or even to decent cassette recorders, they could pick up like Deng Lijun tapes. And those were being circulated. Teresa Tung, who was a Taiwanese singer of, I mean, a fantastically talented one, they were really into John Denver and the Carpenters. There were some people by the mid-1980s who got hold of Michael Jackson. <laughs> but there was nothing that really resembled rock except in small, small quarters of Beijing where they had exposure to long-term foreigners. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons why Beijing was so important to it was because there were not the diplomats themselves so much as their children they had their CD collections. They had tapes and things like that that could be dubbed. There were also journalists, people like Graham Earnshaw, who had already been in China for quite a number of years and started one of the, the first rock bands there. So the people who were close to them, for whatever reasons, often it was people who worked in tourism, right? There were a couple of guys that I know, one guy named Cao Ping, who because he was a, a tour guide, was always able to get tapes from people who were visiting China from abroad and dub them or record their CDs off of, you know, in the evenings after when they were all safely tucked away in their hotels, he would be there copying liner notes, <laughs> you know, very neat hand. Yeah. I remember my mum telling me about when she first discovered Deng Lijun, Teresa Ten, you know, and just thinking, oh my God, I've grown up with communist music, but music can be like this, especially in the Chinese language. Um, so you can really imagine the excitement of that decade. For you then, Kaiser, what was the reason for choosing Tan Dynasty as the band name? Actually, it was a, a grand smuggling project. I, I kind of understood that we had, I mean, there were a couple of reasons for it. I understood that we were trying to basically package a form of music that to most Chinese ears was just really harsh and absolutely foreign. There was just, you know, no precedent for it in China. Um, Because you're on the harder side of rock as well, right? I mean, you're you're metal. Yeah, we were a metal band. I mean, the idea was, look, if you ask most Chinese people what the most 
glorious period of Chinese history was, it was the Tang, and especially, you know, the Shengshi and the Kaiyuan periods, the very end of the 7th century through the middle of the 8th century, say. And if you ask them why China was great during that time, it was precisely because China was open to foreign influences and it was cosmopolitan. So there, it was kind of a, a cipher built into it. Mm. And I was trying to sort of piggyback on this idea of opening out to the rest of the world and trying to basically align the idea of the band with that idea. At the same time, Tong evokes the kind of wuxia, the kind of romantic warriors and, and the poets of, of the age. There was a kind of both civic and martial virtue aspect to it, which I wanted to reflect in the music as well. And I knew that in the West, the cultural touchstones of so much of the music that I had grown up with, whether it was the metal stuff or Led Zeppelin or what have you, was stuff like Tolkien or medievalism, medieval fantasy or historical fiction. Um, there was a lot, you know, the Arthurian stuff, right? And I wanted to look for an analogous touchstone in Chinese mm -hmm. culture, and that was obviously the wuxia epics and things like Romance of the Three Kingdoms. And so it was quite deliberate. I mean, I, I knew that so many of the kids who were interested in rock who I had met had grown up on the Jin Yong stories and on, you know, Sangwo Yi, the Romance of the Three Kingdoms and Shui Hu Zhuai, the water margin. So I looked for connections there and we came up with Tang Dynasty or I came up with Tang Dynasty. Wow, that's super fun because on this theme of Western influence, I wondered if you can also talk about fusing Chinese musical traditions with this genre because Tang Dynasty did do some of that. I can hear the influence of Beijing opera, And also string instruments like the guzhen. So that must have been quite fun to play with. Yeah, I think that during that time, we were very aware that there was a lot of stuff, for example, architecturally, where they were taking these really ugly white tiled buildings and slapping, quote unquote, oriental roofs on top of them. And, and, and we wanted to avoid that. We wanted to not look like just a rock structure with kind of a, a Chinese superstructure sort of imposed on top of it. And so we wanted it to be more organic if possible. The fortunate thing is that Chinese music is itself fundamentally pentatonic, right? There are a few deviations from that. But so is blues, which is the foundation of rock. So there's overlap. And we played with that idea, that there's strong overlap between the foundations of rock and the foundations of Chinese music. So having it stay more or less pentatonic, the melody structure staying more or less pentatonic, and then adding in Chinese instrumentation, but trying to build that in from inception, from the moment you start writing the song, having a recognizably Chinese element in it was one of the ideas. And there are some of our songs on, on both of the first albums that have nothing at all that's Chinese to them. And we thought that was fine, that we weren't going to be insistent that every song had to be recognizably Chinese. And sometimes nothing more than the lyrics, the vocal delivery were Chinese. 
I mean, this wasn't some ethno-nationalist project either. This was more, you know, about cosmopolitanism. I'd always had this idea that I wanted to create a kind of recognizably Chinese rock, but I wasn't so insistent on it. Mm. But one other thing that I've read about is this influence of the so-called Northwest Wind, the Xibei Feng, that's, that influenced other rock musicians like Cui Tian. Can you talk about that at all? I mean, what is that, you know, the kind of peasant songs of that kind of part of the country? Sure. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with one of the early Zhang Yimo movies with uh, Yellow Earth. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that, I mean, at least for, for me and, and for the group that, of people that I was with was kind of the embodiment of that wave, right, of people who were interested in music from the Northwest. It was sort of wilder and less refined, more untamed, and therefore had, I think, a certain similarity to rock. And it's not surprising at all that that would have been one of the influences. I think another big influence during that time was Uyghur music, mm-hmm. uh, was Central Asian music. If you listen to songs like from Tang Dynasty's first album, the song Taiyang, it had a very, very strong element of Central Asian music to it. And we wanted, I mean, especially with the name Tang Dynasty, the nobility, the Tang itself having been, you know, semi-Turkic, right? We wanted to incorporate elements of that as well. And, you know, look, all, all the rockers in the 1980s, where did we spend our evenings? We all were eaten in the, you know, the Xinjiang Cun, the sadly long gone Xinjiang Cun. There were a few of them in Beijing. There was at Weigong Cun, for example, was one of the bigger ones, but... At Ganjiako also. What were they, like little enclaves of Xinjiang yeah. people in Beijing? Or? Yeah, they were enclaves of Uyghur people in Beijing, and they had fantastic food, of course. And, you know, they sold other things that the rockers of the day were interested in as well. But uh, <laughs> We shall move on. Um, yeah. <laughs> and Kaiser, I've got this vision of kind of like pretty cool rockers, you know, kind of smuggling in music from overseas, dingy bars, live performances maybe a bit of student mixture there from the Beijing universities around the city. Is that fair? Is that a kind of cool vibe that you remember? Yeah, I mean, in hindsight, we've romanticized it a bit. Nobody was quite as cool as they remember. A lot of us wore you know, <laughs> acid-washed denim ensembles and had you know really ugly mullets. Yeah, and then the students maybe weren't as much of a part of it as we now, I think, mm. history kind of remembers most of the people who were in the rock scene weren't intellectuals. I mean, let me just be very, very upfront about that. And I think also the association with uh, the events of 89, that tends sometimes to be overplayed and not for any bad reason. I mean, Cui Jian himself, right? He was really truly the godfather. I mean, truly the person who was I mean, so talented, so a, a truly generational talent. He was not shy at all about putting politics into his music, about associating himself with the student movement of the day. And I think for that reason, people have assumed that a lot of the bands of that time were like that. That mm. just wasn't true. Mm. Well, I want to get into that a bit more shortly. But just before we go, Kaiser, I, I saw you in a 2008 documentary called Global Metal about the metal scene around the world. And one part of the interview there that stuck out to me was how you said that a lot of your early fans who went to those early gigs had no idea what was going on. Oh, they yeah. were stunned by what they were hearing. They didn't know how to head bash or anything like that. And to them, it was just so completely new and alien. Can you talk me through 
what that was like. I can imagine the first time you start hearing heavy metal in a Chinese context, that could be quite jarring. Yeah, especially because it wasn't played particularly well or with very good equipment. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. I think the typical kind of exposure that somebody would have was there were these almost vaudevillian kind of entertainment troops that would be dispatched from Beijing, organized by some, you know, enterprising promoter. And he'd put together these random assortments of acts. There would be what they called peeliwu break dancers, although there wasn't a lot of, you know, real break dancing. And then you'd have like an accordion player singing, you know, traditional songs. And then you'd have a juggler and you'd have like, you know, a, a ventriloquist and then a tango dancer and then a heavy metal band, right? And so <laughs> you, you had no idea what to expect. And so people who were in the audience, I mean, they were from very, very young children, five years old, all the way up to, you know, retirees. And it was a completely mixed audience. And so there was something for everyone, I, I guess. But when we, by the time we got up there, you know, most people would just have their hands clapped over their ears and they would shriek, you know, <laughs> at us. They, they were just get horrified. Get off, get off stage. <laughs> yeah, they, they would be like, get off the stage. And we had a lot of people wanting to pull our hair. I mean, not believing that we had, like, our hair really was that long. They thought it was wigs. We'd get, you know, shooed out of men's bathrooms when we'd walk in. (laughs) Did you notice, because you you founded Tan Dynasty, but I think, am I right in saying that you you left for a few years, you came back in 1996, and then you founded another band called Trenchill Spring and Autumn, again evoking that kind of historical golden era of Chinese history. But did you notice during that time when you were playing a change where people stopped kind of laughing at you and just thinking, really appreciating, becoming real fans? Yeah, I mean, it happened so fast. Again, so I left in 89. And by the time I came back in 91, 92, you know, so in 91, I'd come back and through really no input at all of mine, the band had gotten itself signed and was on its way to fame. They had replaced me after I left after 89 with a fantastic, talented guitarist, this guy named Liu Yijun or Lao Wu. Uh, who was kind of, you know, the Ingve Malmsteen of his day, just blazing fast, a pyrotechnician, just one of these guys. And, you know, I mean, I, I just need to make sure that people understand I was, I landed on a low gravity planet. I was not a particularly talented guitar player. I mean, I was just a very, very sort of stubbornly mediocre guitar player. So it was only just by dint of the fact that those around me couldn't play at all that I looked like I was any good. So, Guys, I'm sure that's not true. <laughs> yeah, it is true. It's absolutely true. So, But fortunately, you know, this guy was great. And so, I mean, he was just the first of many who were just really, really first-class, first-rate musicians. There were so many great guitar players who had emerged at that, at, by that time. Through the, the 1990s, you had just an explosion of talent and, of course, just greater connection to what was happening in the world outside. There were more and more of these tapes that were making the rounds. And then eventually, I suppose it was by the mid-1990s, we started to see these sog-ashed cassette tapes and eventually CDs come into the country where suddenly everyone could listen and understand the level of musicality that was out there, the level of production that was out there. And it just really raised the bar for everyone. Suddenly, everyone... You know, before there there was just a little consciousness of of what differentiated these different genres of music. Now there was a, a real consciousness of of these different 
subcultures that were sort of directed by these musical subgenres, which was a, a very Western feature. But they never entirely lost that kind of innocence about genre, which I thought was one of the great things about China. And then when the internet happened, of course, there was just a gigantic explosion of, of knowledge. When file sharing started to happen, when MP3 search was launched on, on early search engines, then suddenly everyone knew everything about music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. Um, okay, so let's talk about the students then, because it's something that has, I think, been throughout this discussion really kind of hinted at. But the reason for that is because Tuijian's Nothing to My Name really became an anthem of the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests. So I'm interested in your view on the politics and the genre. <laughs> Right, so Tsujin, in 1986, he put out this first record. I believe, I'm, I'm not maybe getting the, the year wrong, it may have been, might have been 85. I but think it was 86, yeah. So the first real homegrown hit rock record was Rock and Roll on the New Long March by Tsujin. And he had a really international band. I think that we need to acknowledge the incredible importance of the fact that his guitar player, a guy who was the son of a Madagascar diplomat, his name was Eddie Luke Lulusoa, was just an amazing guitar player, an amazing stylist, and contributed hugely to Tsujian's success. Tsujian himself was, of course, you know, conservatory trained trumpeter. But, you know, more than that, I think he was just a deeply thoughtful guy. And he wrote music that I, I think just touched the soul. That first record, I still pull it out and listen to it all the time. It's just an absolute classic. And I, I think there there is something. There is this... This was in a period, I think, where China was still, uh, where authenticity still sort of meant connection to your sort of proletarian roots. And Sui Jian definitely had that. It was in a period where materialism was starting to overtake Chinese society. And for him, the kind of stance against it, in a lot of the songs on the first album, uh, it's about the kind of code hero in the Sui Jian music of that first record is a, a, a guy with a ton of artistic and personal integrity, but nothing to his name. You know, he's, he's impoverished, but he loves deeply. He feels passionately about personal individual freedoms. And of course, students were going to just resonate with that. Because they have nothing. And it was also transgressive in a, a way that was, it was unprecedented. There was nothing like that. It, it wasn't just that you know, so like Deng Yun was transgressive in her own way, but that was in a fairly mild way where it just became possible to think about things that were incredibly bourgeois like love, right? Mm-hmm. We'd moved beyond that by 88, 89. And, you know, by the time that, that Sui Jian's hit was starting to make its way into the, the student consciousness. And it, this was transgressive in a more, you know, openly sexual way. Right, right, right. And I, I guess the students in that square, it, because he had performed live for them, didn't he? So it really kind of boosted morale in that sense. So this is horrible and weird and, and hard to say, but he actually got shut down after he played only a couple of songs by the students. <laughs> really? Okay. Because they told him that he was disturbing the, the hunger strikers, that all the, the loud racket was disturbing the, the hunger strikers. So there's there's debate whether he completed two songs or not, but he just at most played a couple of songs before 
he had the plug pulled, ironically, by... I mean, and you have to understand, that this period in Beijing was one where we were playing a ton of... We played in places where you never would have been allowed to play. Like, we played this gigantic show at the Gentleman Observatory, right? I mean... I worry that we may have done some damage. I mean, we weren't up on top of the observatory among, you know, the armillaries and the different celestial spheres, but we were down in the gate section of it playing a show, which was we <laughs> we played a show in Nutan Park during that time. It was possible to do a lot because basically the students had completely occupied everything within the northern loop of the second ring road. But Suijian ironically was shut down by student leaders in, in Tiananmen. But, you know, it was certainly super iconic, really, really mm. iconic. I happened to own at that time a red guitar, a uh, Canadian guitar called the Larravee. And uh, when my parents saw that he was playing this red guitar, they thought that I had lent it to him, that I was, <laughs> it wasn't mine, no. <laughs> well, as you say, Kaiser, um, Tozian didn't shy away from making some kind of political statements in his music. Did it affect his career then to be associated with a political oh, uh, movement? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think it couldn't have not. The ironic thing is that it was after 89, the Chinese authorities actually deliberately promoted other rock, right? It wasn't Tsui himself, but uh, bands like a band called 1989, kind of provocatively. Hei Ball, you know, Black Panther, uh, Cobra, Tang Dynasty, these were all invited to play at the Beijing Exhibition Center in a kind of bid to renormalize China after Tiananmen. They were hoping to, you know, to bring the Asian Games to China, which they successfully did. And part of that was showing their openness by allowing these rock bands, in fact, you know, by paying for all these these up-and-coming Chinese rock bands to play at the exhibition center. And that's actually the night where a lot of them got signed. Right, right, right. So for you and your peers then in the music scene back then, did you feel like your genre had this political scrutiny on it? Um, not so much. Actually, no. We knew that some people did. We knew that Suijian certainly did. Uh, others were... Uh, they had that kind of anti-authoritarian streak, but they didn't manifest it in, in politics. It was more sort of, you know, social rebellion. Right. And in the case of Tang Dynasty, I mean, I have to say that there were members of the band that w- you'd call politically conservative. You know, they would say things to me like, you know, that uh, this is only possible because of reform and opening, right? <laughs> and, you know, therefore we should support it. And, and they would say things to me like, look, I feel like there's no more reason to listen to me talk about politics as somebody who's only graduated from junior high. They would say things like, if you wanted to talk about any of the complicated political issues of the day, I mean, write a pamphlet or do something like that. Write a speech. Uh, Why write a four-minute rock song with a rhyming verse and and a repeating chorus? I mean, doesn't that end up being just slogans? And doesn't China already have enough political slogans? Isn't that one of the pathologies of China to begin with. So, yeah, they would say things like that. And and I kind of got it, you mm. know. That's really interesting because I think, you know, I'm certainly not a rock musician. <laughs> and, you know, from the outside, you would think that it's a genre that's at least partly motivated by rebelling. I guess it depends on what you're rebelling against. But would you disagree with that? I mean, is it just the, the subject of what you're rebelling against? I think that rock definitely likes adversity, I mean, I think it does definitely needs to feel like it's pushing up against something that wants to keep it down. And that's certainly part of its spirit. But I think there's a danger in assuming that those 
conditions need to be in place before rock can exist at all. I mean, I think that it, it, you know, in the West, we kind of imagine. So, I mean, I remember an interview that I was sitting in the room when the lead guitarist Lau gave this interview where he, he said, look, this isn't the 1960s and China is not the United States. Don't expect that. The, so, the same social forces are going to act right, on us. Right. And, and so, yeah, there were, I mean, bands like Flower, they wrote about uh, rebelling against homework assignments and mean teachers, right? Sure, there were there's a lot of rebellion against social conformity, rebellion against the all-pervasiveness of commercialism in life. And so, yeah, there's plenty of other things besides political authority to go up against. And some people did go up against political authority and, and more power to them. That's, that's fantastic. But... I think that we shouldn't either assume that all the genre conventions applied or the kind of socioeconomic conditions that produced rock in the West necessarily pertained in, in China as well. Mm, yeah. And when did you bow out of the music scene? Uh, not, not until I left China. I, I mean, I, I played in spring and autumn in Chunqiu from when we started the band in 2001 all the way until the eve, the evening before I left in, in 2016. We played a big farewell concert in at the very end of May 2016. And then just as a, a kind of final afterthought, the night before we left, we spontaneously did a little acoustic set in a, a small bar near the, the drum tower. And that was the end. <laughs> wow. Well, very different venues. I mean, quite a poetic ending in the sense that you've got this small bar, which harks back to your early days, and then this massive concert, which is what decades of your work and your peers' work have done for mainstreaming this genre in China. Well, I wish we had mainstreamed it. I, look, the fact is that there's not, I mean, numerically maybe there are, but by a percentage of China's young population, it's tiny, right? Mm. I mean, rock, you can't pronounce it a success in China. China has yet to produce a really internationally successful rock band. Rock itself never really took hold as a genre. I think that China is still kind of in a phase of primitive capital accumulation. It may have plenty of the adversity, but it never really kind of achieved the kind of decadence that maybe rock also requires to thrive. Do you think that the party's cultural control could also be a hindrance to rock's international success in the same way that, you know, in the film industry, you see Chinese films becoming ever more hammy in the sense of how they have to adhere to propaganda guidelines? Do you think that could be a reason why to, to kind of stem creativity? Absolutely. It, it absolutely can be. And I think there's very little doubt that's part of the reason. But I think that, that that can be overstated. I think that if I had to find the main culprit for it, a lot of it just simply has to do with, I think we missed our moment in the market. There was a time when Chinese tastes weren't really fully formed and it would have been possible if we had the right people doing the right things and working hard enough to really shape popular tastes. But um lost out completely. I think that maybe where China is, or maybe it was always going to be this way, music was going to be entertainment and not art, mm. right? It was always going to be that way. And it would have been hard for anyone to, to do it. But so so I blame the market more than the Marxists. Um, <laughs> so do you think you lost out to like K-pop and that kind of stuff? Yeah, it well before K-pop came along, rock had already kind of lost its moment. I mean, it, we lost it to the, you know, saccharine canto and mandopop from Hong Kong and Taiwan, which is just so brilliantly produced and so hooky and catchy. And, and these are things that, that rock musicians could have learned, but they defined themselves really in opposition to that. 
And so, you know, they went for stuff that was, you know, more deliberately jarring and and Mm. sonically and lyrically transgressive and never really kind of settled into a kind of, you know, gosh, yeah, I I don't regret that necessarily. Maybe you have to be careful what you wish for. I don't know what a successful rock would have looked like in China, but I do feel like it missed its moment. Interesting. Do you miss those days, Kaiser, because you've kept the hair? (laughs) <laughs> you know, I've kept the hair largely because I can't find a style of men's hair in, among Chinese people that I think I would feel natural in. Maybe like a Tang Dynasty man bun kind of vibe? Yes, I do that once in a while. I mean, if I <laughs> don't want to get hair in my food or, or whatever, I'll, I'll sometimes do that. But yeah, look, I of course I miss it. How could you not, right? I literally dream about it every week. At least once I'll wake up remembering that I had one of those, you know, pre-show anxiety dreams where my equipment wasn't working or where I'm, you know, reunited with an old band and we have to play a a gigantic gig. And it's usually in some weird foreign country. It'll be like in Prague or something. (laughs) But yeah, I just, God, I miss it like crazy. I mean, I still play. I, I taught myself drums during the lockdown and you know, bought myself a drum kit and I play a lot of drums now. I still play guitar, but not nearly as much. But nowadays it's just, you know, jamming with a friend. It's, yeah. I'm not writing anything, not putting anything down, playing a lot of acoustic guitar, learning all the old strumming songs that people know how to sing. Like I'm getting older too, you know. <laughs> and what about the new stuff that's coming out these days? I mean, are you still keeping in touch with that? And do you have any recommendations? Yeah, so people send me a lot of stuff still. People tell me, you know, what, what is coming out of China that they particularly like. And yeah, there have been a few bands that have really caught my attention, things that I've I've quite liked one that I keep going back to and listening to again and again. It's not going to be for everybody, but there's there's a metal band that you know definitely they they were. If I've talked to some of the guys and and they're they're very into the old Tang Dynasty and and Chunqiu, but they've they've definitely taken in a harder direction, you know, more of the kind of screamy and and growly vocals. They're called the Song of Chu Chu Ge. Okay, yeah. I quite like them. I mean, that's the one that leaps to mind. But a lot of it, I also really like a lot of the Mongolian themed metal. And especially the band Nine Treasures. So if you get a chance to listen to them, uh, they actually won a battle or came very close to it. And I think they may have actually won a Battle of the Bands competition, a gigantic uh, metal festival called Wacken in Germany. They're fantastic. So another band in that genre is Ego Fall. And yet another, unfortunately, the, the lead singer committed suicide a few years ago, but they were called Tenger Cavalry, T-E-N-G-G-E-R Cavalry. And you can find all of that on Spotify. Oh, super cool. Uh, the, the one that I listen to at the moment is called The Who, the H-U. Yeah, whatever. I mean, they're 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 <laughs> fine, but just seriously, I mean, if you like them, listen to, to Nine Treasures and you'll see exactly why I think The Who is just sort of not as good. <laughs> No, that, this is exactly what I have you on a podcast for, Kaiser. Thank you so much, Kaiser. Um, rock on. Rock on. Hey, thanks so much, Cindy. It was great to talk to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.